Welcome to the Universal Joint Podcast. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host Dustin Fuse and I are recording this on Sunday, January 19th, 2020. Dustin, I guess we, we have to start where we have to start, which is Super Nintendo Land. You know, like everybody else who talks about themed entertainment, this past week when that video dropped out of Japan, I think the Zapruder film was viewed fewer <laughs> times than this video. And your take? I'm in the same boat as everybody else. I, I think we're all interested interested to see what the next uh, phase of these announcements are going to be. We're within the home stretch of this theme park coming into existence. You know, it's supposed to coincide with the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, and that has a starting date. So. I'm assuming that the Super Nintendo world that they're classifying as a life-size living video game is going to live up to that incredible video that we saw. But I think the big thing that came out for me was the the power-up bands, these uh, wearable technologies similar to, I don't know, let, let's magic bands mixed in with some Tapu Tapu and the augmented reality of Pokemon Go. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, there's that, that wonderful short video of, I guess, a reporter at the event literally walking up with his band and then leaping in the air and hitting the bottom of a question cube and having it light up and make the noise that everybody knows from the game. Sure. For me, that's the wands again from the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. And I'm not saying that dismissively. I know it sounds like I'm saying that dismissively, <laughs> but it's just that's another thing that makes being in that world that much more real. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're going to create a Nintendo-themed land, people are going to want to be able to do what, what Mario and Luigi do, leap in the air and hit a question cube and collect a coin or that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a smart choice. The video itself was lovely. I loved the imagery. But we still don't have an opening date. Yep. And yes, you're right. In theory, there's a hard date somewhere because the Olympics for Tokyo are looming over the horizon. But speaking of also of looming over the horizon, you can stand on the back lot, you know, or, or in the upper lot, look down to the lower lot in Hollywood and see the construction of what most people in the theme entertainment industry will tell you is the Hollywood version of Super Nintendo Land for the West Coast. But again, in classic universal fashion, they haven't even admitted that that's in the works. And here's all this steel and concrete rising up out of the ground. So, And, and you almost feel uh, bad for the tour guides that are mm. doing the tram tours in the backlog being like, what do we say? <laughs> like, there's, There is construction. They have to drive past it multiple mm. times during the day. And you look over and be like, so that's coming. And people will be like, what's that? And you're like, well, on your left-hand side, we have the voice. <laughs> well, uh, to be fair, I'm not entirely sure if, if the construction site that I'm familiar with is uh, the one we're talking about here. It's actually behind Jurassic World, the mm -hmm. ride. Yes. And I'm pretty sure that's not necessarily on the tram route. These days, you can see it from the parking garage. You can see it from the upper deck. I want to say right from the edge of Super Happy Funland the, the, in the Minion area. Yes. They haven't admitted it's coming. And I would bet you, given the way that Universal operates, they won't probably reveal that the Hollywood one is coming till the one in Japan opens, which we don't know when that's going to happen. So yeah. 
On the other hand, that one little short video of the reporter jumping in the air and hitting his band on the question cube, that looked cool. That got me excited about the land. I wish we had some more definitive information to share, folks, and hopefully that will be coming in the next few months. But when Dustin and I last recorded the show, the holiday parade featuring Macy's. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. A long time. I apologize for that, folks. But yeah, that the parade was the holiday parade was still rolling through Universal Studios, Florida. Likewise, on the West Coast, people were gathering on the upper lot to watch the Hula Day tree lighting ceremony which happened twice a day during Grinchmas out there. and But Grinchmas wrapped on December 29th. The holiday parade stopped running through the Florida park on January 5th. That was two weeks ago. So brand new year for the stateside Universal Parks, Dustin. The differences between how Universal Hollywood is sort of booking out its time, the events it's got scheduled for the next couple of months, versus what's going on in Florida. This Friday, they start their lunar a uh, New Year's celebration out in Hollywood. And it's for me, it's kind of intriguing because where the wonky Christmas tree once stood, now they're putting up uh, faux plum blossom wishing trees. Oh, cool. So the idea is you fill out a slip of paper and you know, you hang it from the tree, and that's your wish for the coming year. One of the other high points of this, and I think this is its second year, possibly its third year, but they build a recreation of Poe's village from the Kung Fu Panda movies. And the high point is Mr. Ping's noodle shop. Oh, absolutely. This is the duck, Poe's adoptive father from the Kung Fu Panda movies. And it's this wonderful puppet that the folks from uh, Jim Henson's Creature Shop out in L.A. built for Universal. And it's this, I mean, it's wonderful blinking-eyed, tilting-head, beak-moving thing that... Whoever is performing or the the Universal team members who perform this character are just wonderful. They stay in character. You know, it, it sees Ping from the movie, so he's constantly hustling, trying to get you to buy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And the other aspect of it, you know, the, what's kind of interesting of, of the Lunar New Year out at Universal Hollywood is you get things like the Minions dressed in traditional Chinese attire, likewise Hello Kitty. It's also very strange, or at least for me, to go to the lower lot to the Transformers, uh, the ride 3D attraction. And there they have uh, Megatron, uh, the, the walk-around version of Megatron, but he's speaking in Mandarin. So oh, That's awesome. It is awesome. By the way, I, this, is, this year we're celebrating the Year of the Rat. And to just put on our, our Disney hats here for a moment, Dustin... How bizarre is it that Remy's Ratatouille Adventure is opening in the France Pavilion at Epcot during the Year of the Rat? I bet it was planned. (laughs) (laughs) I've been been keeping up on the the construction out there with not only Remy's uh, Ratatouille Adventure, but also the the new Beauty and the Beast sing-along. Lots of stuff going on in, in the World Showcase. But yeah, it was definitely interesting to see what's going on. And they're doing a huge improvement to that section of the the France Pavilion. It, you know, any way to get people into the back and to really, you know, experience that area, huge fan. For me, it's just a, a little frustrating that the Impressions de France Theater, you know, they, yes. they just did this 4K upgrade of the projection system there. So the Impressions de France film is never going to look better, projected in 4K digital, but you only get to see it after seven o'clock at night. 
And the other thing, frankly, is that this theater was set up for that, that sort of variation on Circle Vision where it's the five screens. Sure. But the B2B show only uses one screen. Yeah. I've heard some conversations, and it. it's an interesting kind of perspective that the more that the World Showcase pavilions bring in these external IPs from Frozen and uh, now with Remy and Beauty and the Beast coming into the, the France pavilion, whether or not that actually will have any impact in recruiting for cultural representatives. And I think it's, I don't know if we're at the point right now where, you know, throwing up the the white flag or hitting a button to be like, eh, I don't know. But in recent memory, you know, when you went to the Norway pavilion, you were going to Norway, you were going to experience that. Well, now it's kind of been transitioned into Arendelle. And now with Beauty and the Beast taking over for Impressions of France and only having the two or, you know, depending on how late Epcot is open, two or more uh, showings of that show, whether or not people are going to be able to see whether or not having cultural representatives that are speaking about their cultures back home are on the same level as, hey, can I get a Lumiere plush? If we're talking about the purity of Epcot, I can't, oh, that ship has sailed. Yeah, you know, I mean, if if you're you're looking at you know what's going on with Future World in regard to World Celebration and World of Nature, and I forget what the other one is called. I mean, it's just I'm not one of those people who's willing to invest a whole lot of time into stressing about characters going into Epcot. It's there. <laughs> it turns the the turnstiles. It showcases the ability to, you know, let's be honest, it's a theme park and it, it's supposed to draw revenue. And w- even when I was working down there, we're talking more than a decade ago, we still had Mickey Mouse and Pluto plushes and the various countries, you know, garb and that kind of thing. And it happened. It was just interesting to hear people talk about that type of element with people who are down there on a a cultural visa now being kind of taken away from that and into another one. It's just an interesting topic. I, I love talking about the World Showcase getting better. And with Beauty and the Beast and Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, that's just going to be even better. But again, this is a modern theme park. The hard reality is that, for example, the work that SeaWorld is doing about shoehorning in Sesame Street, that all parks these days rely on characters to sort of get people through the turnstiles. The very next thing we're talking about for the Universal Parks would be the Mardi Gras celebration. And in Florida, that's running February 1st all the way through April 2nd. When it comes to the parade or that sort of thing, they really don't do a lot of character theming. Mm -hmm. They try to stay true to that, though the original, real Mardi Gras, if you go to New Orleans, by February 25th, went to Fat Tuesday. And New Orleans relies on Mardi Gras as a huge tourism draw as well. In fact, you know, I was just looking at the schedule for Mardi Gras for New Orleans, and it's amazing the number of crews that stage parades for weeks on either side of the official uh, February 25th. So, mm-hmm. but Universal, they do 62 days this year. Of Mardi Gras. You know, it's a leap year, which which sounds like a lot. But actually, if you go back to 2014, 
that's the year the Diagon Alley uh, was supposed to open. And the original plan was the Diagon Alley was supposed to be open for Memorial Day. And because of an extremely wet winter and early spring, they didn't actually get Diagon Alley open till July 8th. This is why that year, Mardi Gras ran till June. Oh, they, wow. <laughs> they had 119 days of Mardi Gras, yeah. which you wonder how the crawfish supply held out. <laughs> By the way, this year, folks, is the 25th anniversary of Mardi Gras at the Universal Parks. Very first year was 1996, and back then it, it only ran for four weeks. It ran from March 6th through April 6th. And I have a task for folks. I've got a description of an image that evidently Universal released to the papers, but I haven't been able to actually find the image. Basically, what they did to promote that Mardi Gras was coming to Universal Studios Florida was they created a Mardi Gras mask big enough for the 40-foot-tall King Kong animatronic to wear... Evidently, they shot it either for a print ad or for a commercial. I know for a fact that Universal did this mm -hmm. because you can actually Google it right now. The holiday celebration that they used to do at Universal Studios Hollywood, they would actually dress up the 30-ton King Kong animatronic that was in their backlot tour, King Kong Encounter, the thing you, you'd roll through the tram. and There's a, a picture of... That figure dressed in a Santa hat and suit, clutching an oversight candy cane. So there had been precedent. They'd done it previously. Mm -hmm. But somewhere out there, there's a picture of Kong wearing a Mardi Gras mask. So if anybody can find that and share that with Dustin and I, I'd really appreciate that. Absolutely. All right. Now, I have to ask again, because there's kind of a generational difference here between you and I, Dustin. I'm an sure. old fart. And I, I'm getting there. <laughs> well, <laughs> you have a ways. I'm going over the, the musical acts they've lined up for this year. Yeah. Do any of these grab your attention? I mean, obviously, The Roots, February 1st, to kick off the event. And that's basically the house band of The Tonight Show these days, right? Yeah, or, that's been Jimmy Fallon's band since they, they basically took over The Tonight Show. And it great guys. We've mm -hmm. seen them a, a couple of times in concert. Really mm -hmm. up-tempo very much a, a, a crowd-friendly uh, environment, which is great. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what were the other ones? Cool in the Gang, yeah. Yeah, Ario Speedwagon, yeah. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Any of these getting you on a plane to Orlando? I think the Diana Ross one would be a very interesting uh, show. Great show. Apparently, she's really good live. Um, TLC, mm -hmm. you know, Waterfalls. And I think the big one that's out there is Marshmallow. Uh, that's a international superstar that... Uh, will definitely take over that that area. But let's be honest, with Mardi Gras, anytime the headliners show up, it is a mm -hmm. big draw, not just for folks who are visiting and, and traveling to Universal Orlando. It's huge for the local annual pass holders. Okay, very cool. So yeah, they, they're definitely a big one. Speaking of the annual pass holders, people go to Universal for the Mardi Gras celebration. One of the big parts of it is the parade. And yeah, the fact the that, yes, and that's the thing, that people want to go home with beads. Or toss them into the tree as you're going along the exit movators. <laughs> okay, that I didn't ha know. Have you seen those? No, I have not. Oh, so at, when you leave City Walk and you're heading towards the, the parking lots, mm -hmm. on the right-hand side, which is the, the side that that area is going, like people are walking towards the, uh, the parking, mm -hmm. inevitably every single night, 
thousands upon thousands of beads end up on those trees. And it takes Universal a little bit of time to go up there because keep in mind, as you were saying, it's a a long event. So because of that, they're not going to go up there every single day. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, for the rest of the summer, you're going to see beads on the right-hand side as you're leaving the park in those trees. And you'll wonder, hmm, I wonder what night that was from. (laughs) Well, speaking of which, if you want beads to throw into these trees... Universal has made it a perk of being an mm-hmm. AO pass holder at that park that you can ride, you can sign up to be on the floats the, the night you're in the park and you can throw beads. The way the floats come into the park is they come in from that backstage area uh, next to the uh, the horror makeup show. Yeah, Mel's driving. Okay, hang a left, head up Hollywood Boulevard, come to the corner where they enter the production corridor, Hang a right, head up the street to New York, hang another right, come to the end of New York Street, then wiggle past Mills Drive-In, and then go out the same gate that they came in. But here's the thing. When you sign up to do this, throwing beads is kind of an art form. Absolutely. If you're, you're there as the parade floats come in, you watch people learning to do the job. So they either underthrow, so the beads land in the street. Or they overthrow and, you know, they literally sail over the crowd to, to behind them. They're still learning and they're driving up Hollywood Boulevard. In fact, there's what they call the Little Jester area. Years previous, it's been in front of Terminator 2 3D. Sure. And this year, because of the work that's going on on the... Uh, the uh, Born Stuntacular. There we go. They moved it to the other side of the street. They moved it to the Brown Derby. But the thing is, you have all these little kids who are desperate for beads, and you have people who are still learning their job. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of kids getting hit in the face with beads. You know, it's yeah, like, bring, bring ski goggles yeah, for your so, kids. Seriously, if you want beads, especially if you want to talk, you know, have enough to throw in the tree as you're leaving the park, you know, the, the resort. Um, what you want to do is you want to be at the end of Hollywood Boulevard, up where it makes the turn, Onto the into the production corridor, headed toward New York Street. You want to be there because a that's where the floats have to slow down to make the turn. Mm-hmm. So you know there's more time, more people are throwing beads during that period. Also, what you can't see is that on each float in between the so what they do before the float goes out, they literally carry these cardboard boxes full of beads and place them between the people who are riding on the float. The problem is they're learning their job and sometimes they get a little too enthusiastic and by the time they get to, to New York Street or or making the turn to go to Mel's, they're out of beads. Then you get a lot of waving and like, throw me, throw me some beads. And it's like, I have no beads. I'm sorry. I emptied my cardboard box. And, and if you're on the, the left-hand side, you can mm-hmm. uh, hang out in front of the Today, to, Today Show Cafe and maybe get one of the Al Roker's uh, chicken biscuit sliders and, you know, just kind of go in between. You know, you get your sandwich and then you head out and you get your, your beads and then you go back in and it's good times. Okay. Okay. I think we're supposed to be pushing the jambalaya, but you know. When when we were down there, did you get a chance to try uh, the chicken sliders? I think we talked about this. There was the, I went in to try to do it and there was the no line line. Yes. The no line line. Yes. You're right. And it's just sort of like, eh. So, oh, uh, another thing while we're giving folks advice about 
the Mardi Gras Parade. The entertainment schedule is your friend, folks. Be sure to consult that because there are some times that the, the Mardi Gras Parade will be presented as early as 545 in the afternoon. And that's because the park is closing at 7. Mm-hmm. There are nights when the park is closing at 9. Whether well, they wait as late as 7.45, and then there are different times that they're doing it because, of course, the concerts that are being presented on the plaza. Yeah, if the concerts are starting at, what time, 9 o'clock mm-hmm. or so? Yeah, depending on the day, it's, it's going to change. But yeah, all the dates that are that basically have a concert, mm-hmm. it's going to be a 7.45 uh, parade. Yeah. Let's also remember, folks, that... Uh, because of the parade route, because it basically sticks to the front half of uh, Universal Studios Florida, if you're back in Diagon Alley or you're back at Men in Black, you're not going to be aware that the parade is going on. And mm-hmm. you've got little ones who want beads or that sort of thing. Just uh, be aware. Make sure to read the schedule and be in the right place at the right time. Speaking of schedules, though, let's talk about the stuff that's going on at Universal Hollywood. Sure. While Mardi Gras is going on in Florida. So we have, first of all, we have our Bravo Top Chef and Wine Festival, which is going to be at Hollywood on March 19th and the 20th. Mm-hmm. And then Peacock Live, which is supposed to be NBC Universal's first ever fan event. Yeah, it looks really cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to admit, the Peacock Live is the most interesting. But I, I, I think... For, for a couple of reasons. One is, of course, this is the event where Universal is going to be talking up their subscription streaming service, which have you followed how they're doing this, that they're making it available yeah. to Xfinity customers on April 15th, which, mm-hmm. by the way, is the day the Titanic went down. So I don't know <laughs> if I would launch a particularly big business thing on that day. By the way, that that was the most Jim Hill thing that I could have ever heard. And you put a smile on my face. Okay. Thank you. Well, it's also <laughs> April 15th. We pay taxes. I mean, it's just here in the States. It's just, no, <laughs> that's not a date you, you send. People are happy. Yeah. Uh, but then they roll it out nationally on July 15th. Did you hear the price points? Before we get to the price points, it's also being bundled with uh, Comcast and Cox Cable. So from day one, in fact, that's the the really interesting thing is if you talk with the folks at NBC Universal, because of that, they're claiming that from the moment they turn the key in this thing, they're going to have more than 24 million subscribers. (laughs) It sounds like... uh who was it? There, there is a, a a touring artist mm-hmm. that bundled their CD mm-hmm. with a worldwide tour, mm-hmm. and as soon as the the tour went on sale, everyone bought tickets for this. The, I think it may have been Celine Dion, but they they bundled this all together, and all of a sudden they were in the top five, you know, on on Billboard and everything. And I was like, oh, it's because it they literally bundled, like when you bought your ticket for mm-hmm. the show, it came with a, a CD. And when you showed up at the gates being like, I'm here to see the concert, mm-hmm. you here's your CD. And you're like, awesome, a free CD. No, it was included in the, the fee for mm-hmm. your show. So it's a 
brilliant move marketing-wise. It is, it is. But at the same time, to be polite here, dishonest. But again, <laughs> you know, that that's... Uh, okay, you've looked over the schedule for this thing. It's a lot of terrestrial television stuff. You know, you can yep. sit in the chair for The Voice and take a spin. You could, In fact, you, your buddy Al Roker, maybe he's going to be there and maybe he'll bring you a sandwich. I would appreciate that, Al, if you're listening, and you are. <laughs> in fact, I was talking with Drew Taylor, who I do the fine-tuning podcast with, about we really should go to this Peacock Live thing, because they're going to be showing uh, Trolls World Tour uh, three weeks before it's released to theaters, and awesome. uh, giving folks a, a preview of some kind of Minions, The Rise of Gru, which doesn't arrive in theaters to July uh, 3rd. On the other hand, Dustin, maybe you and I should go to this thing, because they're going to have uh, a panel about... Halloween Horror Nights, uh, you know, have the uh, John Murdy and the creative team for that event there to talk about, you know, how they're putting it together and hopefully maybe giving us all a preview of what's coming. Mm -hmm. Likewise, there's a panel about making a theme park attraction. If I know the guys at Universal, they'll spend this panel talking about the Secret Life of Pets off the leash thing. And, you know, it's like, that's lovely. That opens this summer. But what about that thing at the bottom of the hill there? <laughs> We're going to talk about that. So yeah. there's other cool aspects of it, of this, you know, that, that you're going to, if you, you buy the admissions media for the Peacock Live, they are going to let you get down to the lower lot. And as opposed to viewing all of these places like Courthouse Square from the tram, you're going to actually be able to get out and walk around. So uh, Yeah, they're saying you can interact with sets, props, and costumes. We, I guess we should mention the price points. And more to the point, these are the early bird prices, by the way, folks. Peacock Live, uh, it's $159 for adults, $149 for children. And they're also offering a $299 early bird, but that's the two-day ticket. And yeah, but that's the premium one. That. Oh. And supposedly priority seating for the panels and the presentations. Now, when, when you see these prices, though, so $159, $149 for the first one, general admission, the premium access for $300. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came to my mind when they put this out was, mm -hmm. hey, look, another theme park experience. Maybe they're going to do something similar to D23. Maybe we're going to see the interactivity that comes with those types of events. You get amazing access mm -hmm. with people who are in the theme park industry, all of these amazing things. And then you started to realize, wait a second, Peacock Live, they're going to be talking about the streaming service. So you're going to get access to not just theme park stuff. You get everything that NBC Universal is working on. So I was very interested in it. I think the price point works. I think it's not too astronomical, but it's the first time that something like this is going on. No. And I think that the fact that this is this is the Olympic year, which NBC Universal is the rights holder for the US to actually promote and talk about the Olympics, talk about access. The other thing, and again, I think we should also warn folks that there's demand for this. In fact, for example, the, the Bravo Top Chef and Wine Festival They've already sold out of one day's worth of the VIP tickets. The uh, oh, wow. the March twentieth, uh, they've got the VIP tickets, and those are two ninety nine per person per day. They've already sold out. So what we're saying here is that you know maybe don't dawdle if this <laughs> does sound interesting to you and you want to get on the first ever NBC Universal fan event, might want to jump on those early bird prices. On the other hand, Dustin, I'm pretty confident that when it comes to 
these panels, uh, we're probably not going to get a presentation on either cats or Dr. Doolittle. And in fact, uh, in a moment, Dustin and I will talk about what went wrong with this uh, most recent Robert Downey Jr. movie. Okay, so Doolittle only sold $22 million worth of tickets, which when you're a $175 million family fantasy film, that, that's not a good thing. No. Nancy and I actually did manage to get out yesterday to, to see this thing. And you look at it and you get that everybody came to the table trying to make a good movie. Universal really wanted this to work, especially in this blockbuster-driven film economy. They loved the idea of getting a, a new series of fantasy films up out of the ground, especially one that starred Robert Downey Jr., who's just coming off of the biggest movies in film history, Endgame. We had the Eddie Murphy Dr. Doodle movies, and those did well, and they were actually mm -hmm. three direct-to-video home premiere sequels, and so it's like, okay, it, it's safe to move in to go after this property, and it's like, but the problem is everyone forgets the 1967 Dr. Doodle, the musical. That lost so much money, Dustin, it almost took down 20th Century Fox. In fact, oh, wow. If Disney had had its A-game, then they could have picked up that studio for pennies at that point. Well, that movie got made back in 67 because Fox had just released Sound of Music, which is, to this day, it's one of the most commercially successful films ever released in Hollywood history. Year before, in August of 64, Mary Poppins came out. Then October of that same year, My Fair Lady came out. And so you had... These three musicals that won all sorts of Academy Awards that made all sorts of money. And so there was the equivalent of the Oklahoma land rush of everyone in Hollywood getting in the musical business. And Fox wanted a big movie to follow the sound of music. And and for those of you who know your Hollywood history, the, the, the thing that, that My Fair Lady these days is particularly famous for is that Jack Warner made the decision that Julie Andrews really was a Broadway star, but not a film star. And so he opted to hire Audrey Hepburn to play Eliza Doolittle in the movie version of My Fair Lady, where, which left Walt Disney with a wonderful opportunity to grab Julie Andrews, have her star in Mary Poppins. That mm -hmm. became a smash for their studio. She actually won an Academy Award for playing Mary. And, but there's a lot of people in Hollywood believe that she did a great job as Poppins, and in a weird sort of way, it was a consolation prize for not getting to play Eliza Doolittle. Oh, interesting. So here's the guys at Fox, and they're like, okay, so we want to do a follow-up to The Sound of Music, so we clearly want something with Julie Andrews again. On the other hand, everyone still talks about, you know, oh, what a missed opportunity it was to have not have Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews in the movie of My Fair Lady. It's like... Why don't we make our next musical a project that stars these two? And so, and it, it turns out that they, you know, they were looking for something in the style of, of Mary Poppins. And, you know, P.L. Travers wrote, you know, an English woman wrote the, the Mary Poppins books, Hugh Lofting. Englishman had written 14 different Dr. Doolittle books. And it was like, oh, look at it, this will be perfect. And so initially, they're literally going to do it as a, the My Fair Lady reunion project. In fact, they reached out to Lerner and Lowe, the guys who wrote the music for the Broadway and the movie version of My Fair Lady. But it turns out that Frederick Lowe had decided, I've gotten a very big check. I'm retiring. <laughs> 
and oh, that that is a great thing to realize, right? Yeah, it's like, hey, like I don't good. have to work. <laughs> so Fox at that point, it's like, okay, well, we can't get them. Why don't we go after the Sherman brothers? Sure. And, you know, and it's it's because again, all right, they actually had language in their contract at Disney that said that they could make one movie for another studio other than Disney. And it turns out they just agreed at that point to make Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for Cubby Broccoli, the guy who did the James Bond movies. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm really sorry, we're not available. So they, they end up hiring Leslie Brusick, and he had just had a hit show on Broadway, uh, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And it all goes downhill from here, because Rex Harrison decides, I don't want to do this movie. I don't want to spend that much time with animals. So he says no. But the guys at Fox look, okay, so we just made The Sound of Music. Let's reunite the, the leads of that. We had Christopher Plummer and Julie Andrews again together, the people you loved in Sound of Music in a brand new musical. Trouble is, Christopher Plummer's on Broadway, so they have to buy out his contract to bring him into the, the movie, and they start the costume fittings, and suddenly Rex Harrison raises his hand again and goes, I changed my mind. I want to be in Dr. Doolittle. And it's one of these things where it's like clearly... A movie that stars Rex Harrison will make more money than a movie that stars Christopher Plummer. So they, 20th Century Fox literally has to turn around at this point and go, I am so sorry, Christopher. Here is your, a check for everything we agreed to pay you to play this role. That's why to this day, Christopher Plummer says that Dr. Doolittle was his favorite film role because he didn't have to do it. <laughs> you know, just That's awesome. Got a giant chunk of money and just I, I didn't have to be in the flop film. So yay. <laughs> But by this point, now Julie Andrews is rethinking her career, and she doesn't want to do another singing virgin, you know, Mary Poppins, the, the nun from Sound of Music. So she walks away from the project. And and like I said, again, they make the movie. It goes down in flames. It cost, was supposed to cost $6 million to make in 1960s money. It costs or excuse me, $17 million. Uh, and like I said, nearly took down Fox. So... We jump ahead to Robert Downey Jr. Again, he and his bride, Susan, are finishing, you know, they, they're working on the two-film end of these, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Infinity Wars and Endgame. And they know that the Marvel, especially, spoiler alert, folks, you know, Tony Stark doesn't make it out of Endgame. So they knew the Marvel checks were going to stop coming soon. So it's like, okay, so what do we do? And somebody points out, hey, the Hugh Lofting books have just slipped into public domain. And it's like, that's great. As a film producer, I mean, that's Disney country. You know, you don't have to pay the guy who wrote Cinderella. He's dead. You know, you don't have to pay the guy who wrote Sleeping Beauty. The the Grimm Brothers, they're dead. You don't have to pay Hugh Lofting. You don't have to pay your surviving heirs or the publisher. And 14 books in the series. You know, there's a whole fodder for a full franchise here. So... And they walk it around to all sorts of studios, and Universal wants in. They were really excited about this because this was a possibility to take a show like Animal Actors at the parks Mm -hmm. and suddenly have a character overlay. It's like Dr. Doolittle Animal Actors featuring the cast. Yeah, the up um, with the the Wings of, oh, not the Wings of Wonder, the uh, one at Animal Kingdom. No, no, no. Where they put the up experience in there. That's it, exactly. So... But this is where it starts to go a little bit south. They make the decision that, you know, we want an Academy Award winning actor or writer to handle this project. So they reach out to Steve Gogan, but he's the guy who wrote Syriana and Traffic, which are very dark dramas. Yeah. And he comes up with a a kind of interesting hook for the movie in that 
Dr. Doolittle had a wife that he loved and she died. And so he's withdrawn to his estate and it's been seven years since he's interacted with other members of the public. And it's like, okay, well, that's that's a way you start a you know, happy family film. <laughs> uh, and then Robert Downey Jr., I don't know if he was channeling his inner Johnny Depp, but you know how you know people, when they talked about Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, initially it's like, wow, what Johnny Depp is doing with Jack Sparrow is very daring. And so evidently Downey came across this video of a Welsh doctor that was so odd and that he loved so much he forwarded it to Steve Gogan. It's like, oh, we should, I want to do this guy. And Gogan's like, okay, sure, yeah, let's do Dr. Doolittle like that. And the problem is that Downey's doing a Welsh accent is so incomprehensible. You know, it was what, the only times I've been in a movie theater where I'm sitting there going, you know, if closed captioning were closed captioning, yes. right now, I would I would hit that button in a heartbeat. But they shot it and started in mid-February. They wrapped by June. You know, initially, this thing was supposed to come out in May of 2019. But Universal got a little concerned because back then, that's when The Rise of Skywalker was initially supposed to come out. You know, that was before mm-hmm. Disney pushed the release date back to December. So they were like... Let's push it off. And then they started doing test screenings and people really didn't care for this movie. And that's when it actually got pushed off till January of 2020. That's when they brought in the guys who, well, they brought in the director of the Lego Batman movie and the gentleman behind the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. And every dollar is up there on screen. Mm -hmm. It looks amazing. It's just, you don't care. (laughs) You know, I mean, you just, the story never really engages the audience. When Downey announced this, he was still Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark, Iron Man, you know, the the star of these hit films. So the voice cast for this thing, for the animals, I mean, he's got Tom Holland, the new Spider-Man. He he has Ralph Fiennes. He has literal Voldemort. <laughs> yeah, I mean every, every you know Emma Thompson, John Cena, John Remy Cena. Malek, every, yeah. everybody you know wanted to be part of this project. You've never listened to a more star-studded cast. They did the exact same thing with Cats if you think about Dame Judi Dench and all of the other folks who were in that film. And again, same thing. The audience did just did not show up. And that's what's especially fascinating for me about what's going on right now, because Universal basically is like, okay, so we got cats, we got Dr. Doolittle. Mm-hmm. Have you seen 1917? Have you seen our Sam Mendes movie? Because you know, that was in limited release on Christmas Day and just went into yep. wide release this past uh, January 10th. So we're going to hit that hard for award season. We're going to prevent the, you know, pretend that Cats and Dr. Doolittle didn't really happen. And then looking so, at— So literally, as we're having this conversation, Jill is watching that movie. Is <laughs> she, she really? She went with a friend oh. to there because I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be recording with Jim. It's going to be a, a you know a, a great time. But if you if you wanted to go out and enjoy you know the evening, it's a, a great night. And she's like, I'm going to go and see 1917. Awesome. <laughs> I would love to hear a response to this because everyone is talking about this camera work in this thing that is just extraordinary. In fact, it's, it's the predictions are that it's going to do very well on the tech awards side, you know, cinematography, costume, that sort of thing. 
the way you deal with a film, you know, when you're a studio these days, get doesn't work is you move immediately to the next project. And, and yes. in this case, the next project for Universal is The Invisible Man. So remember the Dark Universe when they were going to do that interconnected series of Universal monster movies. This is an entirely different take on that. It's not a period piece. It's uh, it's Elizabeth Moss of Mad Men and The Handmaiden fame. Uh, and The West Wing. Yep. She was a huge, huge part of that. That's where I know her from. And this is produced by Bloomhouse, which, of course, yep. you know, the modern horror. What Universal is hoping is that this will be this year's Us. Yes. You know, which, again, came out mid-March last year, cost $20 million to make, made a quarter of a billion dollars worldwide. But totally disconnected from the Invisible Man, uh, back on November 26th, Universal announced that they're making, they, they cut a deal with Elizabeth Banks to make The Invisible Woman. Interesting. Which she's going to star and direct. And then six days before that, uh, Universal announced that they're going to make Renfield. Renfield was basically Dracula's henchman assistant. Supposedly the idea with this film is that it's after Dracula and Renfield has been institutionalized and everyone thinks that Dracula is dead. You know, we were just talking about the Halloween horror panel that's going to be held at Peacock Live in, you know, the tail end of March. And one of the more successful mazes at this past year's Halloween Horror Nights was the Us Maze. So you got to wonder if, you know, we actually go out and attend this thing, you know, are they going to be talking about maybe the Invisible Man panel that, you know, or the Invisible Man haunted house that they'll be doing for the 2020 edition of Halloween Horror Night in Orlando and Hollywood. That would be awesome. I'm pretty sure we're, uh, like we'll be able to get some great questions in. Uh, my assumption is that if we head over to the Fast and the Furious section where they're talking about supercharged, we'll, we may be able to get you know some ear time with, uh, with some of those creative team members. But I'm excited to see what's going to come. That is a lot of information. And I think you're right with the idea that Dr. Doolittle mixed in with cats, mixed in with all these uh, attempts that Universal is putting out there mm -hmm. by way of their their studios. They're trying. They're putting together the best possible cast that they could mm -hmm. and swinging for the fences. Universal is trying a lot of interesting different things. In fact, just this past week, I don't know if you're familiar with the Adventure Zone podcast, the one that the McElroys do. Uh, no, I haven't listened to them yet. Oh, it's it, it, this wonderfully funny series of podcasts. It, it, it's basically three brothers and their dad playing Dungeons and Dragons. But, you know, that, that I mean, it's full of personality, great humor, wonderful storytelling. But Peacock Live just revealed that the McElroys are teaming with the folks who made Orphan Black to make an animated version of the Adventure Zone for Peacock Live. I guess they're writing a script now and they'll be looking to put together a pilot. You have to admire that for NBC Universal because it's like, it's not a one size fits all thing. It's not like, okay, let's try to make, 
you know, let's take hit Broadway musicals and and try to make a movie. Or, you know, let's take a beloved children's book and try to make a movie. It's like, okay, let's take a podcast and try to make a movie. And, you know, by the way, you know, Universal Joint is available if you want to, you know, to to, to license the screen rights. Absolutely. We could could take this on the road. We can can do a... You know, it, it wouldn't take that long. Lo- it, small cast. Okay. So small cast. You know, that's a selling point in today's day and age. Who's going to play you in the movie, though? I think there is... Uh, me? <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> hey, there's nothing easier than going and getting a, a you know, a podcaster from Canada. That, that could work out. I think I've seen that movie. I think Kevin Smith made that movie. Yeah. You know what? Justin Long could play me. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's I'm, I'm holding out for Josh Gad. But anyway, um, <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll tell you what, until that shows up at a multiplex and nobody goes. Uh, Dustin, where else can they find, uh, folks find you online? So I, I'm over at the We Like Theme Parks podcast. Find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify, everything like that. Um, I'm also over at uh, StepsToMagic.com, Universal and Disney Trip Planning. Uh, and obviously over here, anytime that we, uh, Jim and I have the chance to get together and talk about Universal, it's always fun. Uh, what else do we have here though? We've got the Disney dish with Lentesta. We've got, I think I mentioned, uh, fine tuning the animation podcast I do with Drew Taylor. Uh, we also have the Marvelous Disney Podcast, uh, which I do with Aaron Adams. Uh, we also just recently got a new episode of I Want That Out the Door, which is about merch uh, at the parks and that sort of thing. And uh, we also uh, have been doing a lot of shows lately with uh, looking at Lucasfilm in, in regard to, well, the, the MOOC, you know, the, the Rise of Skywalker, The Mandalorian, and, and The Rise of the Resistance Ride. That just opened this past weekend at Disneyland. So, mm-hmm. seventeen seconds, from what I heard on on day one, seventeen seconds uh, for them to get uh, all of the boarding groups completely full. Oy, oy. Yep. Well, okay. So, <laughs> sorry, folks, if you don't hear from Dustin and I for the next few weeks, that's because we're we're online trying to to get our boarding group. So, yeah, we're we're showing up every single morning. We we try, we fail, we get our complimentary ticket, we come back tomorrow. It's the way it works. The <laughs> life of a theme park fan. There you go. I'll tell you what, folks. If if you like uh, what you've heard here tonight, if you could do uh, Dustin and I a favor and head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only um, Universal Joint, but also the We Like Theme Parks. And likewise, if you really, really, really like what we do here, if you could head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, um, well, again, that, that helps get us out to Anaheim to, to stand in line and not get a boarding group. Thank you for listening. And hopefully Dustin and I will be back with a brand new edition of Universal Joint uh, soon. You know, certainly quicker than Dr. Doolittle 2 makes it out into theaters. Um, (laughs) And until then, thanks for listening.